Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 22. Divisions in the church. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. The rich young man. And as he was settling out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Monica. Would you please now join me in bowing your heads as we pray for God's spirit to work in us. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you are as faithful as the sun that rises every morning and sets every evening. Lord, all creation testifies to the beautiful attributes that you possess. You are faithful, you are good, you are kind and merciful. And we come to you this morning asking for your grace now to descend upon us as we sit at your feet to hear your word. Lord, there are many competing ideologies, every counterfeit gospels that are out there that are proclaiming good news to us that try to take our loyalty away from you. But, oh, Lord, would you once again capture our affections yet again so that we could be set free from the deceptions and lies of this world and that you would enable us by your spirit to live out and apply the beautiful truth of the gospel that we will hear this morning. And, Lord, we pray that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let me ask you guys something. Growing up as children... Has anyone ever said the following to you? Why don't you just grow up for a change? Or how many times do I have to tell you, when are you finally going to grow up? Right? Has anyone ever said that to you? Oh, will you just grow up already? If you have, chances are that person, whoever it was, maybe a teacher, maybe a parent, maybe a friend, <laughs> probably wasn't giving you a compliment at the time when they would say, oh, just grow up. In fact, it probably was the opposite. It was probably a mild, if not downright, insult, and that's probably how you received it as well. It is not a very positive statement for someone to make to you when they declare, why don't you grow up? Which is why you may wonder when you walk into these doors, the very first thing that confronts you in the face is a massive green hulking banner that says, grow up, right? Are we implying something negative to you, our guests, or maybe those of you who are members? Is Pastor John passive-aggressively saying something about you guys as if it's an insult? Am I saying anything despicable about you guys when I declare it's time for you guys to grow up? No, not at all. 
When this church, when the vision of this church constantly declares this message, grow up, grow up, grow up, we are not, as the leadership of this church, saying anything despicable about you. Rather, we are saying something that delights in God. When we say as a church that the vision of this body is to grow up, we're not saying something immature necessarily about you inherently, but what God delights in all of us as followers of God. Listen, God delights it when Christians are growing up in the faith, or as we're going to say in today's sermon, when God's people are spiritually maturing. God loves it when his people are spiritually mature when it comes to their faith. In fact, his greatest desire of anything, out of all the things that he desired of us, the greatest desire he has for us is for you and I to spiritually mature. And to persuade you of this, we're going to take a look at two passages of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and Mark 10, two passages that both in their own ways talk about the significance of spiritual maturity. And we're, as we take a look at this, we are going to come to understand three things that I want you to understand from the Word of God today. And those three things are the frustrations of spiritual immaturity, the hindrances to spiritual maturity, and finally, the means toward spiritual maturity. The frustrations of spiritual maturity, the hindrances to spiritual maturity, and finally, the means towards spiritual maturity. Okay, so let's jump right in. First, the frustration of spiritual immaturity. You know, when my son, my second born, Judah, was about a year old, he actually had a developmental problem. Thankfully, today he grew out of it. But back then, he had this inability that really frustrated him. You see, he was born with a condition where he did not have the full capacity to swallow correctly, which is why when you were around him at that age, the guy was constantly drooling, like buckets and buckets of saliva, right, as if he was one of those dogs that drools a lot, you know, like he drooled all the time, okay, and as a result, that meant he was not able to eat solid foods at the time when he should have as a year-old child, which means every night at the dinner table, we as a family would eat dinner, and he would be shrieking at the top of his lungs, right, because he wanted to eat what we were eating. I mean, at that point of his development, he knew that what we were eating was so much better than that bland milk formula that he had to drink every day, every night, right? He could smell it. He could see it. He could, he could just anticipate the awesomeness. He could see his beautiful sister just going, mm, this is so good, right? He's like, ah, oh, give me some. But of course, we couldn't give him any of the food because he was physically immature. If we actually gave him any of the food, he would actually start to choke. So he could not enjoy the things at that time of his development he should have been able to enjoy because he was immature. My son Judah was living out the frustrated principle of what happens when you do not mature. And that is when you are immature, you are cut off, you are blocked off from the things of life that make it worth living, that make it enjoyable, that make it blissful, that make it a blessing. Right? And that same principle applies when it comes to spiritual maturity as well, when it comes to your spiritual life. When you are spiritually mature, the Bible says you now have access, you now have a pathway to make your life more enjoyable, more fulfilling, more amazing, and more blessed. But conversely, when you are not spiritually maturing, you are cut off, and you are frustrated, and you're not able to enjoy the life that God has created you to live as his follower, as his image bearer. In fact, Paul says the very same thing in our first passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Can we have our passage up there, there, please? 
Starting in verse 1, Paul writes the following, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way now? As you can easily pick up, the Apostle Paul is very frustrated. And why is he frustrated? He's frustrated because the very people that he poured his life into, the people that he has cried over, sweated over, the people that he's invested time and energy into are, adequate, are inadequately mature. They are spiritually immature. And he gives one reason and one reason only why he is so frustrated by the Corinthians' spiritual immaturity. You know what that is, what that reason is? He loves the gospel. He loves the gospel. Listen again to what he says in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. You see that word, addressed? In the Greek, that's the same word that you could use for preach or to teach. For those of you who are familiar with the writings of Paul, you know that he only taught one thing. He only preached one thing, which is what? He taught the gospel. He preached the gospel. So really what he's saying here is that he is frustrated with the Corinthians because he can't share with them everything that he has to offer to them when it comes to the gospel. The only thing he can share are the elementary things, the bare fundamentals of the gospels, the kind of ABCs of the gospels and not the beautiful, rich, hearty, meaty aspects of the gospel itself. And that is so frustrating for for Paul because if there's anything that is so precious to him is the gospel in all of its fullness because he knew the gospel in all of its fullness nothing compares to it no earthly treasure no enlightening philosophy no sensual pleasure could ever compare to the richness and vastness and the beauty of the gospel in all of its depths and all of its wisdom in all of its fullness but here's the thing He can't share this with the Corinthians. They're not ready to receive it. They are spiritually immature, and as a result, he's so frustrated. Let me try to illustrate Paul's frustration with a silly illustration that I made up. Imagine for a moment there is a man, a very athletic man who loves basketball, okay? In fact, basketball has been his life throughout all of his childhood, throughout all of his adulthood. As a kid, it kept him out of trouble. And it gave him the discipline to where he excelled in other areas of his life, to where basketball was able to give him a full-ride scholarship to a school that's very prestigious, to where he got a great quality education. And not only that, he was so good at basketball, he was so committed to it, he won a few championships that built up his esteem and his confidence as a man. And as a result of all this confidence and all of his stature that he built up, he was able to attract a beautiful woman to be his wife, right, who also happened to love basketball. Basketball gave so much to this person. And so one day he has a son. And what does any father want to do when he has a son? He wants to pass on the very things that made his life worth living. So let's say that this father says, you know what? Basketball gave so much to me. I want to give to you, son, the very thing that has blessed my life. I want to teach you how to play basketball. And so let's say this father is trying to teach his son how to play basketball. But then something odd happens. For some reason... His son did not inherit his father's athletic abilities. And so as he's trying to coach and teach his son, his son is fumbling with the ball. He doesn't understand the principles of the game. And he gets so frustrated. But there's one thing about basketball that he loves. He loves to dribble the ball. It's like, hey, I'm good at this. 
I love this. Oh, this is great. I love basketball. Of course, the father is somewhat elated that his son finds something delightful about this game that he loves so much. But then he goes, son, that's just the fundamentals. How about we learn how to pass or how to shoot or how to guard? Can we do that? He's like, no, dad, I'm quite content. I'm so happy. I love basketball. And the dad's like, come on, let's just kind of mature out of that. Let's grow out of that phase and let's just start playing the game. Like, no, dad, this is great. Can you imagine how frustrated this father would be? He is frustrated. Why? Because this son has settled for just dribbling a ball as his source of delight rather than tapping into the greater delight he could have if he just made the effort to grow a little bit more in his skill and play the game the way it was meant to be played. That is the frustration of Paul towards the Corinthians because they have just settled for the fundamentals of the gospel and not pursued and therefore forfeited the greater joys and bliss that could come if they would mature in their faith, if they would go deeper in their understanding and application of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they're just content. But here's the thing. Paul goes on to warn the Corinthians, and he's really warning us, that if you refuse to mature, if you are just content with just the bare fundamentals of the gospel, and you say, oh, this is great, sooner or later, that joy that you have, even over the fundamentals of the gospel, will start to wax and wane, and you'll start getting tired of it. I mean, how long would it take for a child who loves dribbling to get tired of dribbling? Like, yeah, this is getting boring, right? Paul is essentially saying that if you don't grow in your faith, if you don't grow in your grasp of the gospel, if you don't grow in your understanding of the gospel, your, your pursuit of the gospel, even the little gospel that you have will become cliche, it will become trite, and it will be boring. Here's the question. What happens to a Christian when the gospel becomes boring? Do you guys know what happens? Well, listen to what happened to the Corinthians when the gospel became born to them in verse 3. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? You see how the Corinthians were frustrated at each other? Jealous, envious, insecure, low self-esteem. Why? Those are the consequences that happen when you are just content with just dribbling the ball, so to speak. When you refuse to grow, when you refuse to mature. To where God, Christianity, the gospel, makes you yawn. doesn't delight your heart anymore. It just makes you like, yeah, I already know this. Been there, done that. Already heard that kind of sermon before. I already know that story in the Bible. The power in which it can change you, the power in which it can bring delight and purpose and meaning becomes less and less to the point where you look no different and you're just as miserable and you're just as jealous and you're just as insecure as everyone else in the world. Gospel maturity taps you into a path of great delight and depth and hope. But gospel immaturity leads you to despair, insecurity, to where you get so belittled to how you look at yourself and how you look at other people. Those are the consequences that come when you are not maturing in your faith, which therefore begs the question, why would anyone, any Christian, any genuine follower of Christ, Why would they settle for spiritual maturity? Why would they not pursue gospel maturity? Why would they not move forward to greater death and greater commitment to Jesus? What would be the hindrances to spiritual maturity to where that would be the case? The answer leads me to my next 
point, the hindrances to spiritual maturity. Let's take a look at our other passage, Mark chapter 10. And if you've grown up going to church, going to Sunday school, this is a very familiar story that you've encountered in the Gospels, okay? This story is sometimes referred to as the story of the rich young ruler, or some translations puts it as the rich young fool. But just in case those of you here today are not familiar with the story, let me give you a brief synopsis. Jesus is on his itinerant ministry, and as he's walking along, he's approached by a very young, very wealthy person who all accounts and purposes seems to be a very moral, decent young man. He seems to be a person of considerable influence and power to where some scholars have suggested that maybe he is a judge, maybe he's a prominent politician. But regardless of who he is, one thing that we do know for sure is what he wants from Jesus when he asks him this question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the Bible makes it clear that the most loving thing God can do for a person is give that person eternal life, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so what? Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. The most loving thing God can do for you and I is grant us eternal life. Why? Because eternal life is not just life forever. It's the blessed life. It's the greatest possible of all lives. It's the best of the best lives. It's the ultimate life. Okay, eternal life is the greatest life. But here's the thing. When most people think of eternal life, they think it's the life that happens to you after you die. As a Christian, you die, you're buried, but your soul gets lifted up into heaven, and now you proceed to live eternal life, right? People think of eternal life as something that you go through after you're dead. And so when they read this passage, they think what this young man is really asking Jesus is this. Jesus, what must I do to ensure that after I die, I will go to heaven and experience eternal life? Now, on the one hand... That is somewhat true, but on the other hand, that's not completely true. Why? Because the Bible tells us also that eternal life, this amazing best of the best life that a human being could ever experience, is an experiential life that you can have right now before you die. Let me say that again. Eternal life is not just limited to after you are dead. It's something that you can experience, the benefits of which you can experience right now before you die. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of the earth. For you die to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. Paul is addressing Christians who are still currently living as if they're already dead, enjoying eternal life right now. Because according to Scripture, it is possible for you to enjoy the bliss, the benefits, and the hopes of eternal life right here, right now. How is that possible? Well, come on back to Mark 10, the story of the rich young ruler. And notice what Jesus says to the young man in verse 21. Jesus says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and then come follow me. Now, when you first read these words, you can easily misunderstand what Jesus is saying because on the surface, it looks like Jesus is saying, hey, you want eternal life? Prove to me how much you love me. Prove to me how much you're willing to earn eternal life by giving everything away and being poor and obscure and be my disciple, right? It almost sounds like he's saying, you have to show me how much you're willing to earn it, how much you're willing to love me for it, right, by giving everything away. If that's what you're thinking he's saying, you're wrong. That's not what he is saying at all. What is he saying? Look again at how Jesus looks at him. 
Verse 21. And Jesus looking at him, what? Loved him. Loved him. Jesus already genuinely loved this person, this rich young ruler, which means everything that he was about to say was not to tell him what he needed to do to earn salvation out of his love for Jesus. No, he's saying what he's about to say in light of what his love is for this guy already. Jesus is about to communicate the most loving thing to this person, which is what? Do what? What do I want you to do, according to Jesus? Give to the poor. Give to the poor. You know what that is? That's spiritual maturity. Specifically, it's outwardly compassionate. When Jesus is saying, go and give to the poor, what he's really telling this young ruler, grow up. Become spiritually mature. Grow in an area of your spirituality that you are very immature in by giving to the poor, being outwardly compassionate. Why is Jesus saying this? Simply because this. A spiritual mature life is the means of experiencing eternal life right now. Let me say that again. A spiritual mature life is the means of experiencing eternal life right now. In other words, when you are growing in your faith, you begin to taste right now, you get to experience right now a portion of the beautiful bliss, the joys, and the blessings that come of living in life of eternity with God in his second advent, in his second coming, when this earth is no more and the new earth is here. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, this guy, this young man, he had the fundamentals, right? He knew what it was to dribble the ball, so to speak, because it says in verse 19 to 20, what did he say? I've kept all the Ten Commandments since my youth, right? I've mastered dribbling the ball. I have the fundamentals. And yet Jesus says, that's not enough. You have not yet tapped into the greater depths, the greater joys, the greater blessings that come when you are mature, or the way he puts it, when you follow me. When you follow me, when you mature in your faith. Jesus is giving this young man exactly what he's asking for. He's telling him how to enjoy this eternal life right now. He needs to spiritually mature. But what does this guy do as he hears this response from Jesus? Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Here we see why some translations refer to this person as the fool, the rich young fool. Why is he a fool? Because here Jesus is offering him right now the means of enjoying eternal life to grow in his faith. And he just walks away from it. Why? What was the reason why he walked away? For he had great possessions and money. He had stuff. He had things. Now, some of you here may be thinking to yourself, well, I don't have a lot of stuff. Certainly don't have a lot of money. So this thing that's hindering him to grow spiritually, maybe I don't have that struggle. Maybe that's not something I need to worry about. If that's what you're thinking, let me say right now, you're absolutely wrong. Because the thing that's hindering this guy to spiritually mature is a hindrance all of us in here, including myself, that we are struggling with right now. Yeah, you might not have money, but just because you don't have money doesn't mean you don't have this man's hindrance right now. Because after all, what is money? Money is simply a tool. It's simply a means for you to live out your greatest desire in your heart, which is what? I want to be comfortable. I want to be free. I want to be in control, right? I mean, isn't that what really money does for us? Isn't that why we pursue it so often? Because money is the practical means where we can have comfort, 
We can have freedom. We can have control. Just because you don't have the money doesn't mean that you're still not governed by the very thing. So when Jesus is referring to possessions here, he's not simply saying that just because you don't have money, it's not a problem. No, he's saying this is a problem for all of us. Because even if you don't have the money, you do have the thing that drives you to want to have more money. All of us in here, we all want comfort. We all want control. We all want freedom to the point where we think that's the best life. None of this eternal life. No, the best possible life is a life where I'm in full control, where I have all the freedom that I want, and where I'm as comfortable as I can possibly be. Right? That's what we chase after. That's what we do. Whether we're successful at it or not, by getting more money for ourselves or not, that is what governs us, if we're completely honest. And that is what hindered this man from spiritually maturing, and that really is what hinders all of us to spiritually mature. Right? Let's be real. We are not spiritually mature, not because we don't read the Bible enough, not because we don't go to church enough, not because we're not feeding the poor enough. It's because these three things are governing us all the time. We want comfort, we want freedom, we want control. And we think that is the best life rather than the life that Jesus says is the best life. It's not eternal life. It's not the spiritually mature life. It's comfort, freedom, and control. We think that's what gives us joy, which is kind of ironic when you consider how this young man, his emotional state as he walks away from Jesus, what does it say that he was experiencing as he walked away from Jesus? Sorrowful. I think that's kind of the Bible's way of showing the irony of it all. What we think gives us joy may in fact not give us joy at all. And what we think would make us miserable, submitting fully to God, being obedient to God fully, would make us sorrowful when in fact maybe... It could lead us to greater joy and contentment and fulfillment. What's the point? The point is simply this. The reason why this rich young ruler would not mature spiritually is the same reason why many of you don't mature spiritually. You want control over your life. You want your life to be run by your terms. And comfort is your greatest priority. Here's the thing, though. You need to be very careful. I need to be very careful. Why? Because this story in Mark 10, I think, is one of the most scariest stories in the Bible. You know why? What does Jesus do after this guy walks away from him? This is the scariest interaction I ever see in Scripture. What does Jesus do when this guy walks away from him? You know what he does? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He doesn't run after him. He doesn't plead, please, please, with tears. He doesn't forcibly you know, get him into a walked-up discipleship for his own good, he just lets him walk away, just lets him go. One theologian by the name of Paul Miller says these words as he reflects on this passage. Listen to what he says. Jesus looks, feels, and offers help. But when the man, the rich young ruler, rejects Jesus' help, Jesus does nothing. He lets him go. Jesus is not trapped by his own compassion, nor is he driven to rescue this wealthy but sad Jesus doesn't play games with us. He's going to take your decision on whether or not you seek to follow him and mature in your faith seriously, even if you don't. Which means, which means Jesus is not going to take responsibility for your spiritual maturity. That's all on you. And if you presume, oh, you know, at some point Jesus is going to let his compassion get the better of him and he's going to rescue me in spite of myself, you are deluded. Jesus is warning us here. 
If you're going to choose not to mature in your faith, if that's not going to be your priority, you better be able to live with that decision and the consequences that come with it because guess what? I'll be able to live with it. But the question is, can you live with that? Will you be able to live with that decision? Jesus is our Savior, and he will save us. But at some point, there has to be movement on your end to go in the direction of what you value and what you prioritize. Because if you don't do it, he's not going to do it for you. If you choose not to mature, if you choose not to prioritize gospel maturity, that's all on you. That's all on me. It's never on Jesus. I hope you feel the weightiness of that. I hope you feel the heaviness of that. To where it would cause you to ask, well, Pastor John, if that's true, how then can I spiritually mature? So that when I walk away from Jesus, I don't hope that one day he'll chase after me. Let me go to my final point, the means towards spiritual maturity. What is the most loving thing God can do for us? Scripture tells us to give us eternal life. And as I've argued, the way in which you have this eternal life is if you mature in your faith. Or the way that you can experience eternal life, excuse me, the way you experience this eternal life is by maturing in your faith. But there that begs the question, how do you exactly mature in your faith? How do you grow up in the gospel? The answer is really simple, and it's really one answer only. You have to believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says even though we were self-centered, self-worshipping, narcissistic people, to where we want comfort, freedom, control, more than anything and anyone, even God. God responded to that by coming as Jesus Christ into our world so he could live the life we were required to live but didn't, perfect obedience, and he suffered the full penalty of all of our sins that we should have suffered but won't because he came to be our savior substitute by dying on the cross for all of our sins. Why? So that you could have eternal life. Think about that. What did the cross require of Jesus? It required him to give up his comfort. It required him to give up his freedom. It required him to give up control. The things that we cling on to with all our might, he gave it all up. Why? Because eternal life for you, not for him, eternal life for you was a greater priority than his own comfort, his own control, his own freedom. Do you understand what that means? Let me break it down for you. Why did Jesus Christ give up control of his life that resulted in a shameful death? Because he loves you. Why did Jesus forfeit his freedom to where he would die a condemned, shamed criminal? Because he loves you. Why did Jesus give up all the comforts of celestial kingdoms that he reigns over to where he would be shamed and beaten and humiliated by the very people he came to love and to serve? Because he loves you. The reason why Jesus gives up comfort, freedom, and control is because he loves you. And when you understand that love, and when you taste that love, when you are captured by that love, then and only then will you forfeit the things that you cannot let go right now, comfort, control, and freedom. You will encounter a love that is so greater than those things. Some of you are thinking, oh, pastor, let's be real. That's uh, utterly ridiculous. Right? Comfort, control, freedom. Who would ever give up on that, no matter how great the love is? Is it really that ridiculous? 
I mean, aren't there other situations in our lives where we do that all the time? I mean, for example, consider one of the greatest milestones of maturity in adulthood, parenthood. You know, when you become a parent, you don't have freedom. You don't have comfort. You don't have control. Parents, can I get an amen, right? When you become a parent, there's no comfort, there's no freedom, there's no control. But yet if you are a decent parent, you gladly give up those things. Why? Because you've encountered a love that is so greater, so more important than those things, at least temporarily, right? When you become a parent, you encounter a love that is so more important, so more valuable that you're willing to give up comfort. You're willing to give up freedom. You're willing to give up control for a season because you've encountered something far greater. You've encountered love. That same principle applies when you encounter and experience the love of God in Jesus Christ in the gospel. Once you've tasted the love of God in the person and work of Jesus, you will always choose that love over comfort, over freedom, over control all the time. And here's the thing. The more you do that, the more you mature. And the more you mature, the more you love. Yeah. How's that, Pastor John? To further elaborate, let me continue with this illustration of parenting. You know, when I became a father, I was willing to give up freedom, control, and comfort because I encountered a new love, the love of my children. But you know what else happened? I also deepened an already existing love that I already had. You know who it was? Mommy. (laughs) Umma, my mom. You know, when you're a kid, when you look at your parents, all you can focus on is how much they give you a hard time, how much they don't give you the things that you want. It's not until you're a parent that you wake out of your stupidity, right? Where you realize, wow, I finally understand what my parents were willing to suffer, what they were willing to sacrifice, all the comforts that they forfeited, all the freedom they did let go, all the comforts that they didn't indulge in for me. And the more I became a parent for the fourth time around, Every time it deepened my love for my mother because I finally understood what she was willing to sacrifice for me. Parenthood deepens an existing love as well as creates a new existing love that you have yet to encounter. And they work together to change you. The same thing happens when you mature in your faith out of the initial love you get from Jesus. When you initially receive the love of God, You are inspired to give up control. You are inspired to give up freedom. You're inspired to give up comfort. And as that maturity happens, what happens? You start to understand what Jesus had to endure to get to the cross. How much he had to forfeit freedom. How much he had to forfeit comfort. How much he gave up control. And it deepens a love for Christ even more. And the more it deepens, what happens? You get closer and closer to the full experience that you will have when you are in eternity. What do we experience in eternity? You experience the fullness of God's love for you in the gospel. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 27. Listen to what he says in verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. The most loving thing God can do for you is to give you eternal life. An eternal life of blessing that you can experience now as you mature in your faith 
Because by maturing you in your faith, you get to see the glorious love of God in Jesus Christ for you that you will have full access to. Unadulterated, unfiltered, for all eternity, his love for you. The most loving thing God could tell you to do is to mature, to grow up. So when Jesus says grow up, it's not like your teacher. It's not even like your parents where they're mildly insulting you. The most loving thing God could say to you is mature. Come follow me and grow. Because then you will come to understand in a deepening way his tremendous love for you in the gospel. This, this is why our banner says what it does. This is what we offer to the world. The way we bless the world is when we mature, when we grow up, because then we're in a position to live out the love that is gushing over us to where it can spill over to those around us for their good. Have you captured that? Do you understand that? At this time, I'd like to close by asking you to reflect a little bit. So would you bow your heads with me as we spend a few moments just reflecting? I really want to ask just one question right now to you, just one. And it's basically this. Look at where you are today, Christian. Look at where you are today and compare it to where you were five years ago. And let me ask you an honest question. Have you been maturing? Has there been growth in your life? Christ five years ago that's a long time that's half a decade has there been change has there been growth has there been greater joy greater bliss or let me ask you honestly are you bored with the gospel right now more than you were five years ago furthermore comfort freedom control and God what's more important to you right now is comfort, control, freedom or God the most important thing look at the way you're living your life look at the thing that's troubling you right now look at the things that you are anxious over and worried about and where do all those things fall under in the category of control, freedom comfort or your desire for God and to grow in the knowledge of his love for you in the gospel let's go to him now in a time of prayerful reflection
Father, as we have heard your word and as we have processed it, we ask that your Holy Spirit who dwells within us would really cause us to change and to think differently about this precious gospel that you've given to us. Lord, we confess that as we reflect that we have not grown the way we have and that the gospel has become so boring to us we have so settled with just dribbling the ball, so to speak. Father, we pray that you would enable us to yearn for more and to be like the psalmist prayed that we would yearn to live in your house so that we could gaze upon your beauty for all eternity. Lord, we pray that you would inspire us because of the gospel, because of what you have sent your son to do on our behalf. And Lord Jesus, let us always look to you. Let us look to how you put us and our eternal status ahead of your own comforts, ahead of your own freedom, ahead of your own sense of control. Because that is how marvelous your love is. That's how marvelous the Father's love is. That's how marvelous the Spirit's love is for us. So, God, would you enable us to finally live out this commission, these holy orders that you've given to us of blessing the world by becoming men and women who grow up in the gospel. Lord, we want to no longer stay where we are and where we've been, but we want to move forward to greater joy and bliss of living out the benefits of eternal life. So the results of those benefits being lived out among us would lead us in the opposite direction of envy and anger and fighting and low self-esteem and insecurities, but instead to sacrificial servanthood and love and kindness and mercy and grace. Oh God, would you hear us now? For we utterly depend on you to work in us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people together said, amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give, but if you are a member of this body, let's give to God what is rightfully his, his tithes and our offerings.